And we've learned a lot about the power of prayer uh, in our study uh, in Acts. And we'll be talking a little bit more about that tonight. And uh, kind of as an overview of what we've learned so far as we get into really uh, um, the last half of Acts. Uh, it's, it's really such a remarkable story that, uh, that hinges on all that we've covered so far. And uh, if you've been with us for many or most of our studies in Acts, you've probably noticed that there's that the narrative in Acts, um, maybe more so than in most books of the Bible, uh, even though this is true in every book, but Acts, it's so obvious, so front and center, uh, that every chapter seems to be standing on the shoulders of the one before. Uh, every chapter is stacked on top of the previous one. Every event, every milestone, it's almost as if every there, you can see the growth, you can see something coming together. Uh, it's not always with every chapter. Sometimes it's groups of chapters, uh, but a new phase begins uh, every few chapters or so. A new opportunity arises that really launches from the one before it. Uh, you get the sense that something is being built in this book. You get the sense that something's being constructed, not physically, and, and, but more importantly, spiritually, something ideologically is coming together, being constructed, being developed, being organized. And if you get the sense that that's happening, you're right on because that's exactly what is happening in the book of Acts. We, we don't hide the, the, the point of this series, the, the, the heart of this series. The title of it is The Church because the book of Acts is the story of how Jesus built his church. That if you want to know our origin, if you want to know what we should continue to be all about, if you want to know the model that we should follow, the things that we should prioritize, this book is as theologically important as it is narratively. Right, and I think sometimes we separate that from uh, we separate that from the rest of the books of the Bible. You know, Romans is important, and of course, the the letters that Paul wrote after that are important. But Acts, it's a narrative, it's a story. But as we've learned from it, there is so much theology, there is so much uh, truth about what the church is at its heart and what we should continue to be all about at our heart. Because if we are the church, our origin is in Acts. If we you know, want to still continue what Jesus began, remember Acts 1-1, this is the story of what Jesus began. If we want to continue to be a part of that thread, then we'll follow in the footsteps of what Acts established for us. Because Acts is the story not a story, because there's, you know, you can't trace, you trace our history back and you get to the first century and you got to go through Acts to get to the beginning. So, of course, we should come from and build on what Acts established for us. So, Jesus built his church. And if that phrase is familiar to you, it's because Jesus made a declarative promise in his ministry. In Matthew 16, he said, on this rock, the confession that he is the Lord, he is the Messiah, he is the Christ. The followers said, hey, Jesus, you're the Messiah. Peter said, I'll say it out loud. You're the son of God. And Jesus said, on that rock, on that confession, on this monumental, you know, world-changing truth that God has sent his son to do something for sinners, on the rock, confessing, trusting in him, Jesus says, I will build my church. Now, if you want to know why I, a pastor, it shouldn't be a surprise, as a pastor, I'm very passionate about the church. The reason why is because Jesus, in his statement of what he came to do, 
What did they say? I came to build my gathering, my assembly, my body of believers. So connected to it, the heart of Jesus's ministry, to, that he would come and die for our sins and, and form a relationship with us or we would form a relationship with him. We are made a part of his church, his body, his gathering, his assembly and what it was called to do on the earth. Jesus said, I will build my church on this rock, on this statement and nothing will stop it. I mean, you don't get nothing more, you know, more threatening than the gates of hell, the gates of death, right? And Jesus said, if you want to know how unstoppable my movement's going to be, it's that hell can't stop it. And if hell can't stop it, don't worry about Rome. And Rome's a big deal. Rome's a big threat, but Rome has nothing on hell. And I'm going to walk out of the gates of hell with the keys in a few months from the statement, from when we made this statement. I'm going to walk out of the grave. So when I declare victory over death and hell, you can have confidence that what I'm building will withstand anything. So that's confidence that we should have, we can continue to have. So we've been reading how Jesus set out to do this. Acts is how he built it and boy, did he build it. Along the way, the church has learned in real time, uh, the church learns in real time what its namesake really means and what God's intentions truly are. So the thing about the book of Acts is the disciples aren't given the book of Acts before it happens. Now, that might sound silly, but that's an eye-opening thing. They're living it out. So we get to see them fail in real time. We get to see, see them, you know, succeed in real time. We get to see them you know, come to revelation in real time, we get to see them live this out. So the reason why sometimes acts might, you know, seem as if they didn't know what they were doing ahead of time, is because they didn't know what they were doing. Uh, they, they were following God and God was showing it to them in real time and correcting them as well. Uh, in, in many cases, the true beauty behind acts and the priceless value and perspective that it offers um, is that by reading about how it was built stage by stage, level by level, we get to see the essential parts and pieces highlighted and emphasized. So we get to see how Luke, as he tells the story, Luke, you know, emphasizes some things over the other to make us aware that, hey, this is a big deal. This is a part of the building process. These are big, important um, elements of, uh, of that. So it, it's almost like each story that go along with the different building blocks served to underscore, to highlight, to emphasize their importance. So I hope that makes sense. Um, the overarching theme was obviously about establishing or really continuing the movement centered around Jesus and his work that began in the Gospels. Um, Acts tells the story about how it became a legitimate, sustainable, and functioning organization. Now, I want to make a distinction here because it's easy to interchange these words, organization, or we hear people say institution. Um, The reason why I think there's a difference and the reason why I think the church is the former, not the latter, is because an organization is a body of organisms. And emphasis on the word organ or organic, which is referring to people we're an organization of organisms that come together in, to form a company for a cause or an initiative. An institution, which is what religions are, an institution is simply about ideas and concepts. You know, museums represent institutions. They don't care about the people because all the people that they represent, they're gone. Organizations are living and thriving and moving and forward thinking. Uh, an organization obviously involves and is all about people. 
Uh, When Jesus said he was building his church, the word church in the Greek is about a gathering of people, not about a building or a location, which we see emphasized in the book of Acts. Um, It's blessed, of course, when it's driven by his ideas, but the ideas serve the people, help the people, not the other way around. Remember, Jesus' biggest critique of Judaism was that very thing. He said the Sabbath was made for people, not the other way around. And when I'm building my church, you're going to see that what I'm building is for the good good of the people for the glory of God, of course, but for the good of the people and for the bettering of their lives to bringing them closer to God. So Acts is so important because we see them introduced to, come to understand with, and at times even wrestle with God's unchanging truths and ideas. So it's special it's a special book as well because it shows, in grow, it shows the growth of individuals. It, it shows these groups of people or these individuals um, struggle at times in their humanity, but also we see them overcome and assimilate to God's truth. It's always about them going toward God's way. It's never about God going towards their way. It's them being refined and, 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 and corrected and, 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 and taught and trained. Um, Acts allows and makes room for character growth, which is uh, also, you know, facilitating the process that we read about as the church is being built. So we had this entire first section about the church launching, not as some sterile institution, but as an organization, specifically as an organized group of people. And some of the things that we saw emphasized in the first, especially the first five chapters, again and again and again, were prayer passion and the power of God. And that was all working through the people of God. We saw how prayer, they were through prayer, they were emptied of themselves. They were filled with God and they became bold and passionate for God. And therefore they were used by God and his power worked through them for his kingdom's cause. Then in the next six chapters, we saw the church move beyond Judea um, and we saw the focus of the narrative be about the church's mission, the church's mission. And we saw the conversation, the topic over the last couple of chapters have been about what the message of the church is. It was about focusing on what the calling was to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, not to expand Judaism or to Judaism 2.0. It was the gospel of Jesus, which meant it was for everybody which also brought up the church's mobility. Remember Stephen, was he died talking about how the church was not like a temple. It was gonna be everywhere for everybody. And we saw how the church adopted a model of ministry, ministry that was about serving people and reaching to people and doing for others to represent what the church's mission was all about, to carry that message. So over the first 12 chapters uh, of Acts, we've witnessed, uh, we, we've witnessed the church building, not block by block, but person by person, and in a larger sense, mission by mission. Uh, the narrative again and again focuses on the people, whether they uh, are the people inside or outside, those who get it, those who oppose it, those who are somewhere in the middle. It's about people nonetheless. Uh, the rest of Acts is gonna continue to follow this template, people on the mission for God. Uh, and I, I, wanted, I wanted to frame what's coming by looking at what has what is behind us. Um, Acts 12 sees a conclusion to the predominantly Jewish portion of the book, which uh, has already teased and previewed a more global-minded movement. Uh, the, baton, the, the baton has already been passed to Saul of Tarsus. We saw him introduced in Acts 9. He comes back into play in Acts 11, 
And we see him at the end of Acts 12 uh, as serving the church in ministry in Jerusalem. And now he's headed back to Antioch with Barnabas. Uh, in Acts 13, we are, we, we were given uh, emphasis on these two um, as members of the church of Antioch. Uh, these two are going to be chosen to set out on a brand new frontier uh, for the church. From Antioch, they will go to the whole world. And that, that's a big deal. They were going to go into the continent of Europe, which people thought was just beyond the realm of possibility uh, to go into the pagan land of the Greeks and the Romans uh, and beyond that even uh, to, to the, what, they, what these people called the barbarians, the, the people that worshipped uh, the god to the woods. The fact that the European frontier they thought would never ever be a possibility for the church, for the Jewish God to reach uh, the rest of the world. That was something they never thought was possible, yet here they embarked on that journey. Uh, I remember the launching, uh, remember how we learned the church was always launching and never landing. Uh, and, and Antioch, they had sent Barnabas. Barnabas had came from Jerusalem and now they are sending Barnabas on this new mission to the rest of the world. Barnabas embodied that spirit of always launching and now he is discipling Saul to follow in his footsteps. Uh, speaking of Saul, Saul is going to become the star of the whole book, beginning in Acts 13. Uh, he's going to uh, begin to go by a new name that we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, why that's important. Uh, and little things like that are going to remind us uh, the bigger message, the bigger picture that's being built towards in Acts. So I want to say more about that, but I want to first get into Acts 13 and see how this next phase began. Remember, we talked about Antioch last week. How Antioch's humble yet faithful beginnings lead to a unique and a once-in-a-generation opportunity. And we, that was a very important conversation we had last week that gets us to this week uh, as they began to go beyond Judea, beyond the Middle East. Uh, tonight, we'll add a few more essential building strategies to our itineraries. So this will be a little scattered, um, uh, not as unified as our normal messages, but under the banner of how we can learn from this remarkable book. So... Acts 13, let's reread verses 1 through 3, and, and I want to learn a lot tonight from these verses specifically. Now, the church that was in Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, uh, Menin, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord, fasted, and the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work of to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed, laid hands on them and they sent them away. So I wanna, I wanna draw your attention to verses two and three specifically, how it says as they're worshiping, your Bible may say ministered, but that's the idea behind that they were worshiping. As they're worshiping, they're also fasting. And there's a, there's a connection there that we're gonna talk about. And also notice the Holy Spirit says, separate to me Barnabas and Saul, and they respond by fasting and praying and worshiping some more. And then they send them away because that's what the Holy Spirit said they should do after all. So we get a bit of insight in how the church at Antioch perceived, value, perceived and valued worship. And it's important to understand that worship is what sparked the mission and what sparked the ministry. If we don't have worship right, we won't have ministry right. So we have to make sure we understand this is an important building block. We see in Acts often that worship is accompanied with praying and fasting. We cannot overlook this. We cannot overlook this because this is essential in interpreting that worship 
what worship is really all about, how worship and church services play a role in the early days and how they should continue to play a role in our day. And you see on the screen, worship is accompanied, let's go back, worship is accompanied and associated with prayer and fasting. We see that in Acts again and again, and we should not move past that so quickly. And in this moment, in this statement, we can see how worship is interpreted in how we are to understand what worship is all about. We see that it's about presenting ourselves before God and it emphasizes our posture before God. So if you say, you know, worship is an open-ended thing, what's worship about? Bringing something to God, receiving something from God somewhere in the middle. Praying and fasting, I think, defines worship for us. It's about presenting ourselves to God and about having the right posture before God. It's about saying to God, I'm ready to receive whatever you have for me. I'll empty myself of this world so that I can be filled with you and your world. So this gives us a little bit of understanding about the role of the church services, how they, what they played in the early days, the role they should continue to play. This is so big, this is so important. I, I need to make a point here that we'll unpack from this text and we'll flesh out because this is, I think, something that we so often get wrong. And I'm passionate about this because it's something that so many of us just stumble over. Here's what I think this text teaches us. Worship is not an attempt to summon God's presence. Worship is about becoming aware of, acknowledging, and surrendering to God's presence. That's so important because there is a large swath of the church that thinks it's about me trying somehow to get God's attention. The book of Acts should remind you that we've already got God's attention, not because we did anything, it's better than that, but because God has done something. So I want you to hear this and I want us to get this. Worship is not about conjuring or summoning the presence of God. It's about being aware and acknowledging and surrendering that he exists apart from and above us and beyond us. Again, let me clarify this. We don't call the spirit down. We don't invite him in. He doesn't need that invitation from us. He doesn't need our permission. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't a right posture. We just talked about that. There is. What I'm saying is it's not up to us to activate him or call him or invite him because here's the good news. The church literally exists because he already has come down. Right, Acts chapter two, what happened? He came down and he didn't say, I'll see you later if you prove it or earn it or call me. He came and he stayed. And the story of the church, the message of the church is that he already has come down and that he's calling us to him. We don't call him, he calls us. And that's biggest, more important, isn't it? What happens in this text? The Holy Spirit says, I've got a word for you. That's what Acts is built on, where it all began. And I wanna, I'm clarifying this because there's a lot of rotten theology out there. And I'm not the only one right, but the Bible is. The Holy Spirit came down because of something that Jesus did, not because of something we did do or might do. 
I hope this liberates you from some stuff that maybe you feel pressure or feel bondage over. And maybe religion has made you so, you know, cross-think, you know, contrary in your thinking to God's word. And, and I think this is just so helpful. The Holy Spirit came down in Acts 2 because of something Jesus did in the Gospels. Not, about, not because of something we did or do or might do. This is so important because so many people get this wrong and woefully are disappointed and misled as a result of the contrary thinking. And let me just say this, the re, people that talk about, hey, we gotta, we gotta do, sing, you know, we gotta sing a certain thing or do a certain thing or give a certain thing. People that, that present that idea that God is up there and you know, he's locked behind something and we gotta bring him down or call him down or sing him down or chant him down. The people that talk about that and preach that, and again, I'm not, you know, God forbid I talk about, I make out like I'm, I'm right and I, I'm more right than someone else. This is just the Bible, so just take it for that. The people that do that, they don't ever cite the New Testament. They never cite the New Testament for why they believe what they believe. They always cite the Old Testament. And let me ask you this. Why do you think there are plenty of Old Testament passages and stories where the people are asking for God to come down and trying to get his attention for him to come down? Why do you think there are so many examples of that in the Old Testament? Because his spirit was not dwelling with humanity in those days. His spirit was not free-flowing from heaven. And then when he did show up, it was behind a holy place in a holy, holy location in a very specific time. And they were still separated from God. And at any time they did experience, it was limited and finite. So of course they were calling God down because he wasn't anywhere near them. Why would we want to go backwards? Now, I'll tell you why, because religion, I'll tell you why this is popular. But before we get there, this is the good news. The New Testament is built on the reality that God has descended and is dwelling with us. Now, more often than not, we don't realize it and we don't recognize it. But the Christian message is you can follow him, you can know him. This is the good, good news. By faith... Our feelings notwithstanding, as in whether you feel or don't feel. You know how liberating that is? In the Old Testament, they were desperate to encounter God, like pagans, chanting and dancing and begging and asking. In the New Testament, God said, I'm coming down on this day, Pentecost 30 AD, which was a Jewish festival, nothing Christian about it. It was the day that they brought sheaves in from outside to celebrate God's faithfulness in the Old Testament. God said, I'm coming down on Pentecost 30 AD and I'm never leaving and I'm never forsaking you. Because the grave's still empty, isn't it? And Jesus is still risen. So now let me say this. Should we sing and worship with all of our heart? Absolutely. Should we worship, should our worship be exciting and engaging? Of course. But not because we're trying to earn something, but because we have been given something. So don't fall for the lie. And this isn't, you know, y'all don't need this, but somebody out there does. And maybe we do. And I think we need reminding of this. Don't fall for the lie that says it's up to us to earn or ask or invite or call God down. He's already here. You know why the enemy has infiltrated churches with this toxic theology? To make it all about people 
and not about God. And we put God, we, we, we color God over songs and over practices, we, and we make it seem like it's about God, but it's not. And I know that's not maybe your intentions, but somebody's intentions are bad, and I'll let you know, the devil is clearly active and present in our churches in the way that we think worship should and, 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 and is done so that we would get distracted and detached from the real thing and get filled with more of ourselves. Now, this has never been a bigger problem than right now in our world today because you have churches on every end of the spectrum who think they're the only ones that do it right. The mega, mega, mega places, they think, you know what? God is only conjured and summoned in our places. And if you really want God, you got to come to us. And, and this tiny, walled-off, militarized places, I mean, God is only with them. He wouldn't be with anybody else because look at us. We're the only ones right. On every point of the spectrum, they all think they have the market cornered. And every group feels that they, it feels what they think they ought to feel until the feeling wears off and then they have to come up with a new strategy and then they desperately try to figure something out until they feel it again. Case in point, those movements become about man and man-centered ideas and dreams and God is nowhere to be found. Satan is working overtime in church, in the churches today to deceive people with this heresy when it's so simple when we simply have to come by faith, come by faith, trust in the finished work of Christ. That's why it's important for me to preach this because it's the gospel on the line. The finished work of Christ. Respond to the spirit who is already and always present. That's the good news and I hope you hear me on this. Don't wait on somebody to pump you up or think it's on you to call him down because on your good days, that'll be great. But on your bad days, that will be detrimental to your faith. And we have more of those than we do the good days, if we're being honest. We get addicted to the highs of never obtaining that which we're desperate for and the enemy enslaves us with guilt and fear and wonder and doubt. And, and here's, what, here's what you can do. Listen to what God has already said. Respond to him in every response you make. Make it by faith, feelings or flesh, cooperating or not. And you will be blessed. In fact, didn't Jesus say, blessed are those not who see, not who feel, not who experience, and yet they believe anyway? Didn't Jesus tell us what worship is all about? in that statement in John, whenever remember Thomas was saying, I gotta see it and I gotta feel it. What did Jesus say? Thomas, blessed are you if you have, because you've seen and believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Literally the message there is more blessed or greatly blessed are those who have believed yet they have not seen, they have not felt. In this text, the Holy Spirit speaks not because he was summoned, because, but because he was respected. You hear that? Because, not because they sat real still in church and they were afraid to move. That's not what I mean by respected. I mean, they were there and they submitted to him and they surrendered to him. That's what a worship service is all about. It's what it's built on. On, on the fact that the Holy Spirit is calling to all of us from the work of Christ, the word of Christ, 
And this is why, this is where we get a little bit of information about what church should be about and why it is so important that we do what we do well and do it right. The church was built to serve as a humble and faithful platform and channel through which the Holy Spirit can work. Emphasis on can, because it is important that we do things humbly and faithfully to God's word to be the right platform, to be the right channel so that the Holy Spirit who has come, so Jesus who has done a work can be amplified through us. I'm not just saying that, hey, you just show up and it's all gonna be on display for you. Yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a necessity for preaching to be right and for the worship to be facilitating this process. I'm just saying it's not on you, it's not on me. And whether I stumble through my words or not, or whether a preacher is so eloquent or not, that's not what is important or necessary for you to get what God has for you. But the church must be a humble and faithful platform and channel so the Holy Spirit can work through. That's the only hope for this world. And that's why we sing songs and pray prayers and preach messages and lead studies and do ministry that clearly communicate that God has made himself known in a personal, obtainable way. Practical, that you can say, hey, this is what I can do with this, this is what I can learn from this. That's why it's important that we do what we do and do it well. We won't win non-believers by ooing and aahing them. We win them by modeling before them what submission and surrender looks like. That's what by faith worship looks like and why it's important. If you wonder, now maybe you're wondering, well, Justin, okay, this is really good for believers, but what happens when non-believers are in the house? I mean, what if they don't, if they don't feel something, what's going to, you know, what, what's going to make them change? Now, there's a lot we can talk about that, but here's what 1 Corinthians tells us that we can win out, how we can win outsiders. Now, that word prophesy, I'll go ahead and tell you, that, that's a, a Greek word that simply means testify or you're speaking forth what God has done. It's not about receiving new revelation. It's about parroting what we have already been given as revelation. So prophesy in this sense is God has done this. Here's how he's done it in my life. So what is Paul saying here? If all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider does enter, he's convicted by all and he's called into account by all. So back to the idea of what church is all about, surrendering to, submitting to what God has already done. We're responding to what God has said, what God has done. We're reacting accordingly. And here's what happens to the outsider. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so they'll fall on their face. They'll worship God and declare that he really is here. But what's key? That we who are believers are worshiping in the right way so that God in his spirit, and that's where we can't control it, and that's where we're desperately at the mercy of the God who is at work above and beyond us. God works through and among the church. Now, real quickly, before we quit tonight, I want to show you how this connects to this first little mission that Paul and Barnabas go on. What's even more powerful at Antioch is that they weren't betting on getting the world's attention simply in their gatherings, but they were going to take their gatherings to the world. That's what the Holy Spirit has called them to do. Separate for me, send for me. He sends them to where the world is, which of course is in the world out there. Uh, before we move on, there is such an incredible essential building block for the church, understanding the nature and purpose of worship, having the right posture in worship, having the right motive. If we stick with the scripture, especially the gospels and acts, there's really no way we get, we get this wrong. And here's something that we see in this first little episode. There is 
We lose our distinction from the world if we suppose that God must be summoned, not accessible through his authoritative revelation. And that's why I make a big distinction about this, a big emphasis on this. Because in these next four verses on their first mission, we see that Paul and Barnabas encounter someone who claiming to be parading about as if he were a magician or a sorcerer. Listen to these verses. So being sent by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they, sailed, when they arrived to Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogue to the Jews. They also had John as their associate or assistant. Now when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, and, and, and probably translation there, Joshua, Yeshua, uh, Bar would mean son of, so we don't really know his real name who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, which is the Bar-Jesus guy, Elymas the sorcerer, for so his name was translated, withstood them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So here we see this tension between this magician driven by Satan contrasting the work of God. Now, this magician would have operated by spectacle and illusion where the church operated by truth, certainty, and testimony. Now, don't you see how this calls back to what we just talked about with worship? Not about trying to summon God or earn God or call God down, but about confidence in what God has already done. Don't you see why this story, I think, is told right after that send-off to emphasize what the church was getting right and how we ourselves can still get this right? One thing I try to emphasize is the Christian invitation is follow and see for yourselves, not what you never know, not if you believe enough or if you give enough or if you do enough, click your heels together the right way, which is what this magician's message would have been. Christianity is about surrendering to what Christ has already done, not about trying to measure up yourself. You see, we look more like witchcraft when we preach emotions and experience. That's my point. When we do that, instead of preaching enlightenment, as in God opening our eyes with his word and with his truth. What's the message of Acts? Again and again, God opened people's eyes. Saul, God opened his eyes, set him free from blindness and deception. God is able to do that for anyone. He's not paywalled or locked behind some trick this is what Paul makes clear as he embarks into a world that was chained to this sort of pagan religion. In closing, look at verses 9 through 12. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, All full of deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what he had done, astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Don't you see the irony there? The magician is made blind, which emphasizes his condition all along. While the man he formerly had influence over saw his eyes opened and his soul saved. What's the contrast here? This 
sorcerer, this magician is trying to ooh and awe and trying to convince people that the gods can only be experienced if you do the right thing and say the right thing and give the right amount and, you know, wave your hands the right way. And here comes the disciples with the straight and simple message that Jesus Christ has done something. The Spirit of God is here. If you will listen, if you will respond, you can experience him the same way. There's not something special you've got to do, not something special you've got to be, not some experience you have to go through. It's accessible and available to anybody. You know what this tells us? The work of Christ can change anyone's life. The word of God can change anyone's life if we will just hear, trust, and follow him. You don't have to go there or experience that, be inclined to this. You just have to be humble and receive what God has for you. Religion loves to make it about tiers and levels. Religion loves to gatekeep and create self-righteous people who are up here and people that are idolizing them down here. And really Jesus is left out of the room in that that equation, isn't he? He gets little to no praise and he's none too impressed. And that's what drove the Apostle Paul. And that's what we're going to look at next time. What drives him to literally change his name because he wants to get this simple gospel in front of anybody that he can possibly win the attention and audience of. So church, don't, I know this was maybe squeezing a lot out of a little, but don't underestimate the detail that God reveals in his scripture, in his word. And don't underestimate the parallel between what worship is revealed to be about in the first part of this chapter and what the contrast is with this magician, which often is a lot similar, very similar to what churches are peddling in our world today. The good news is, I didn't come off a mountain with something that you can't receive yourself. I'm just a simple person open in the Bible that has been revealed to everybody. And the Holy Spirit who moves through me, moves through you, and he moves in these buildings, and he moves in your homes, he moves in your workplaces, he moves everywhere. If we will just receive his word as the authoritative, full and final revelation of God, your life can change radically, more importantly, practically. It's available to anybody if you just hear, trust and follow. All the more reason that we should follow on our face every Sunday and every Wednesday and follow on our face every day and sing louder and pray harder and be as bold as we can be. But we don't do that to try to earn something. We do that because we didn't have to earn anything. It was a gift. It is a gift. And that's what can win the rest of the world, showing them that the gift that you've got, it's there for them too. It's good news. I would say that's the best news. Let's pray. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this good news. Thank you, Lord, for helping us see in your word how you reveal such important things, important building blocks for our churches to follow after all these years later. Lord, thank you for what church is about and what worship is about and what it makes available to us that we might can come before you and access you and not about what we bring, but it's about what you brought to the table. You've already given it to us and we just need to receive it. We need to empty ourselves and be filled with you. 
God, help us to sing louder and pray harder and be bolder and be brighter than ever before because we believe and have certainty that you have done something. And help us, at the mercy of your spirit, of course, tell this and retell this with conviction and with passion. And people want to know, hey, how do, how, how do I know that's real? How can I believe that's real? Your word is a testimony, but more importantly, your spirit moves in response. And, and, and we can respond to him, and they can too. Lord, help us just to have confidence in you and what you have done and what you still do. Lord, forgive us for getting in the way of that. But thank you for moving us out of the way and getting to our hearts when we desperately need it. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.